Well, good morning, church family. It is a pleasure and just joy to be with you this morning. And Angie and worship team, I want to thank you guys so much for leading us to the throne this morning. And before we dive into the sermon, I've got some awesome news you probably have already heard. But a week from today, on July 5th, we will be congregating right here at the church at Woodbine Sanctuary to worship live. It'll be our first live on-campus worship service for four in four months. So we will be following all the guidelines from the CDC, definitely practicing social distancing. Uh, our team, our staff, our deacons are already doing tons of work just prepping the worship center for you to come. So when you feel ready, when you are ready, when it's safe for you and your family to come, we would love to have you. We will still be offering online worship services. It will look a little bit different because we'll be actually live streaming the worship service instead of filming it beforehand. But anyway, I just want to let you know that July 5th at 10.45 a.m., we will be right here at the Church at Woodbine worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can join us live in person or you can join and worship with us online. We would love to have you part of our church family to worship with us. We are in a new sermon series. I'm going to totally change channels now. We're looking at the book of Nehemiah. And last week, we looked at the book of Revelation, and I asked the question, what is the vision of God for your life? What is the purpose of your life? What brings meaning to your life? You see, it says in Scripture that without vision, the people perish. And unfortunately, way too many of us humans really don't have a vision for what our lives should be like. But God has created us. He's created you and he's created me. He's created each and every one of us to be unique and distinct. And he's created us to have an intimate, personal relationship with him through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is raising up a people group from every tribe, tongue, nation, culture. It is amazing. And we get to take part in that. And one day we will all be gathered around the throne as we saw last week a multitude that no one can count, worshiping him forever, serving him day and night. Well, today we're gonna to go to Nehemiah. And so I wanna ask you to open your Bibles. Theron read it to us today. It's Nehemiah chapter one. And Nehemiah is almost right before the book of Psalms. So it's in the Old Testament. You open your Bible up, turn to the left a little bit. But Nehemiah, and before we dive into chapter one, I've got a question for you because we're talking about laying the groundwork of revival and renewal. And to lay the groundwork of revival and renewal, it first starts with having a vision of our King Jesus worshiping him. But then what else does it require? And Nehemiah, and we'll see over the next several weeks, he went back to Jerusalem and he built the walls around Jerusalem. Now, I know when I say rebuild the walls, we might think of the wall between Mexico and the United States. It has absolutely nothing to do with that wall. But this is the walls around Jerusalem and we'll talk about it. But what are the foundations of our life as individuals and as a church that need to be built so that Holy Spirit can truly bring revival and renewal, not only to our individual lives, but to Jesus' church? And so we're going to look at one of those aspects today. But before we dive in, I have a question for you. How do you respond to receiving bad news? What do you do? How do you respond when you receive bad news? A lot of us have received a lot of bad news this year. Very hard and difficult stuff. I've received bad news. And when I think of this question, many times I go back to my childhood of lots of different things that happened to me that were really bad, some extremely horrible. But there's one story that kept coming to mind. I was like, well, it's kind of lighthearted, but I'll go ahead and share it. 
When I was 12 years old, I played Little League Baseball. I was one of the biggest kids in the league, and I had a really good season. Played well, was one of the best on the team. And at the end of the season, they pick an all-star team. And I remember after that last game, they're announcing who the all-star team is. And after about 15, 16 kids were named, they were done. And I was not picked. And it was bad news for me. I was not picked to be part of that all-star team. And I can still remember today, bowing my head, ashamed, walking out of that dugout, expecting to be chosen to be part of that all-star team. And even thinking all the kids that got picked on that team, I, was, I felt like I was better than most of them. And I remember walking back to the car. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want anybody to come and say, oh, it's okay. You should have been on the team, yada, yada, yada. And I just cried in the front seat of the car. That's how I responded to some really bad news. But on a serious note, how do we respond when we hear that one of our loved ones has passed away or has gotten really sick? How do we respond when we've lost a job? Or maybe a real good friend doesn't want to talk to us anymore because there's conflict. What do we do when we get bad news? Or maybe we got poor grades. Or maybe there was a job we really wanted to get and we didn't get it. We were rejected. Or we get, our, for our own self, just our health. How do you respond when bad news comes your way? How do I respond? Well, we're going to look here at Nehemiah, and we're going to look here in chapter 1, the whole chapter. It's a short chapter, but before we read, there's a little bit of context I want to give about Nehemiah. Nehemiah and Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, two books here in the Old Testament, and they actually need to go hand in hand. And way back when the scriptures were written, this book, Ezra and Nehemiah, were considered one book and ended up getting divided into two books. And Nehemiah lived about a hundred, a little over a hundred years after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, 500 years before the life of Jesus. You see, when God called Moses to go into Egypt and to bring the Israelites out of slavery, and he pulled them out of slavery, and God did all these amazing works and miracles, and you can see it in the book of Exodus. And they went through the desert, and they came into the promised land. And once they conquered the promised land up judges and he raised up prophets to lead them. And then he raised up kings, King Saul, then King David, Solomon, and all the lines of King David. And the, the country split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in the old covenant, God kept telling his people, if you love me, if you follow me, if you obey me with all your heart, I will bless you. But God also warned and said, if you do not love me, if you do not follow me, if you turn from my commandments and my ways, I will disperse you among all the nations. And you'll be scattered. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the people of Israel, pleading that they would walk in humility, walk in loving obedience, and repent from their evil, sinful ways. But the people of God, sometimes they would follow, many times they would fall away. And it got to a point in 586 BC, Babylon came storming into the southern kingdom of Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, destroyed the temple, burnt the gates down. And then they sent thousands of Jewish people into exile. They scattered them all over the Babylonian empire. And then they did Judah and Israel with people from all types of nations all around that Babylon was in control. And there was this mixing of cultures and religion. And God's people were in danger, severe danger. But God is always faithful to his promises. And the Jews that were scattered all throughout Babylon, God began to raise many of them up and put them in very key places and key positions within the government, within society. And he told them to place where they were and to pray and to bless the cities that they lived in. And God promised that they would return to Jerusalem and that they would return to the promised land. 
And so Nehemiah comes onto the scene. And because of a certain king, King Cyrus of Persia, he allowed the Jews 70 years after Jerusalem was destroyed, he allowed the Jews to begin to go back. Many went back and the temple was rebuilt. And then Ezra, who is one of Nehemiah's um, contemporaries, he went back to Jerusalem to teach the people about God's laws and God's ways. And there was somewhat of a revival happening. And Nehemiah was hearing all the stories that God was moving and the people were going back to Jerusalem and God's promises of getting his people together were happening again. It was exciting times. And here Nehemiah, verse one of chapter one, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, during the month of Chislev and the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So here is. And in verse 11, it says that he's the cupbearer of the king. He works and serves in the royal court of the king of Assyria, not of Assyria, sorry, of Persia. And he's one of the confidants of the king, of King Artaxerxes. And his brothers and the Jewish people are going back and forth from Jerusalem. And it says when one of his brothers and some other Jews came back to Susa, he asked, how are things going back in Jerusalem? What did they say right here in verse three? It says, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Okay, there's several things here. The remnant, that's a small group of people that have survived. The survived what? The exile. It says they're in great trouble and in great disgrace. Have you ever been in great trouble? Have you ever been disgraced? Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been abandoned, rejected, abused, thrown out? Has evil ever come upon you? And here, uh, Nehemiah's brother and his friends, his, his fellow citizens are saying, they're in great trouble, they're in great disgrace. And then they explain, Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. Again, cultural things here, but back in the time of Nehemiah, any city, any town that did not have a wall was completely and utterly unprotected and vulnerable to any type of attack or evil or destruction. And so the cities would build these walls around them to keep bad people out, to protect their own people. And it was a source of comfort, comfort and protection and wholeness and security. I mean, in many ways, there's almost no way that we can comprehend it. And unfortunately, like I said at the beginning, when we think of building the wall, we think of the southern border, but in Mexico. And there's, that's a, such a huge hot topic with some incredible powerful opinions about what should and shouldn't happen. The wall of Jerusalem has absolutely nothing to do with the wall between Mexico and the United States. Zilch. And the best way I can explain about not having the walls around Jerusalem would be this. Imagine your house that has doorways and windows, but there are no doors and there are no windows. People have complete access to come in and out of your house. They can take anything that's yours, any of your clothes, food. They have access to your cars. They can come in and they can beat you up. They can beat up your children, take your wife, take your husband. You have no security of any kind. Absolutely none. Do you lock your doors at night at your home? I do. I'm a little manic about it. Check the doors three or four times before I go upstairs. It drives my 
crazy. We'll go on vacation and I'll go back to the front door, make sure it's locked two or three times before I actually get in the car and leave. I don't know why I'm that way, but it just is. But Jerusalem was utterly vulnerable to every type of evil. And if you haven't realized it now, this world is an evil, dark place that is in dire, dire need of a savior and of redemption. Nehemiah heard this when he got this bad news, this horrible news about his homeland, about his people, about his capital city where the temple was built. That was the representation of God's presence. When he heard that the walls were torn down, were broken down, and that the gates were burned, how did he respond? It says that he sat down and he wept and he mourned a number of days. As North Americans, we have an unbelievably hard time of lamenting and grieving. It is so inundated in our culture to always have a quick, good, happy ending ending to every story. Look at our sitcoms of 30 minutes. There's a challenge, there's a downfall, and then there's a rescue. All fixed in 30 minutes. Think of how many movies you've seen where it's a sad, tragic ending. You could probably count them on one hand. As North Americans, we can't stand rejection and lament and grief. We don't want to deal with it. And so we try to cover it up, those feelings up. And yet here, Nehemiah, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for many days. Now, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. It's been a hundred and something plus years since Jerusalem was inhabited with walls. They didn't have a nation. They were scattered everywhere. And yes, they were coming back, but they were still a very weak, broken people. And yet he weeps for his people. And it says he fasts and he prays. We talk a lot about fasting. Fasting is one of the spiritual disciplines and habits that we should always live out. And fasting is one of the greatest ways that we can draw near to God and we can truly grow in our love and relationship with him. And God will truly download his heart and his passion, his compassion, his truth and his holiness in you when we pray and fast. And then look at Nehemiah's prayer. Not only does he weep and he mourns and he grieves when he hears the bad news, but look at his prayer. Here in verse 5, he says, And I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. What does Nehemiah do? He starts with praise and worship. His focus is on God. And if, you're, if it's Yahweh, that is the God of all gods, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. God, you are faithful and you are true and you are holy and you are trustworthy. And then he continues, let your eyes be upon, your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer. And I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Look at that. Nehemiah is calling himself God's servant. He's humbling himself. And then he says, day and night, he prays for the people of Israel. And many times I ask, are we desperate enough to truly pray and plead for God's people, for our nation, for the lost? It says in the book of Luke, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem and he saw the multitudes, it says he wept over Jerusalem. And then he said, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I've wanted to get you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. Because Jesus knew he was going to ride into Jerusalem and they would crucify him within the week. 
And yet Jesus had this great compassion for his own people. Nehemiah has this amazing compassion for his own people. And then he goes on to say, and this is very powerful here. At the end of verse six, he says this, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We've acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinance you gave your servant Moses. Do you notice that? I can imagine that Nehemiah is a very righteous, godly man. And yet he's humbling himself and he's identifying himself with his people and he's identifying himself with his ancestors who truly broke God's covenant. And he recognizes, he says, I have sinned. My father has sinned. We have sinned and we've broken your covenant. We are called a royal priesthood. Those of us who love Jesus. And God calls us to stand in the breach and pray for the people and pray for this world. And in order to do so, we must humble ourselves and identify with them. And the same way Jesus became a man and he became a humble servant. Paul says that we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and we are your servants. So every man, every woman, young or old, it doesn't matter what nationality you are. If you love Jesus, you are God's servants and you've been called to serve others and to walk in humility. And one of our roles as priests is to confess the sins of people. And here Nehemiah is confessing the sins of his nation. He is humbling himself. And then he goes on in verse 8, 9, and 10. We're not going to read it all. But he begins to give this amazing summary, basically, of the old covenant. Where he repeats to God what God has already said. And he says, God, you commanded us through your servant Moses to love you and to follow you. And you told us that if we would disobey you, that you would scatter us. But you also said that if we humbled ourselves and returned to you, that you would gather us again. And Nehemiah is saying, we are humbling ourselves and we are asking that you have mercy and grace upon us. Confession. And so here when Nehemiah hears this horrible news about his homeland and Jerusalem, the capital city where the temple has already been built, when he hears about his people group, he, begin, he weeps and he mourns and he laments and he prays and he fasts. That's how we should respond when we get bad news is to humble ourselves, seek the Lord's face. And then when we pray, we need to start with worship. We are the eyes of our heart and our mind need to be fixed upon Jesus. And we need to have a vision of who he is because he's the only one who can sustain us through the dark valleys. And then the power of confession. I don't know if you've ever confessed your sins to a brother or sister, but it is powerful. In the book of James, James says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another and you'll be healed. And it is important as believers, as lovers of Jesus, as men, we need to find other men where we can confess our sins and take the mask off of our face and be honest and transparent and humble ourselves and confess our sins one to another and then pray for each other for healing. As women, Young or old, you need to find a sister in the faith where you can be utterly transparent and confess your sins one to another. There is power in confession. I love the Lord's Prayer because in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us. He said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's a form of confession. 
And John's promise in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then right here at the end of verse 10, look at what Nehemiah says. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and your strong hand. For whatever reason, God loves it when we remind him of his great promises and what he has done. And we need to plead for our people and for our country and for our world that God have mercy on us. Verse 11, Nehemiah prays, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Do you delight to revere God's name? Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Who is that man? It's the king. Because after several days of prayer and fasting, Nehemiah knew that the Lord had told him, I want you to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild those walls. And Nehemiah knew that he had to tell the king to have mercy upon him and to let him go. And remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He was one of the king's closest confidants who the king truly and utterly trusted and basically putting his life into Nehemiah's hands it would be a great sacrifice for King Artaxerxes to let Nehemiah go. But Nehemiah had to humble himself and be bold enough to ask for the miraculous. Will you do the same? In closing, I want to ask the worship team to come back up. And there's so many things that we could focus on in this passage. How God is sovereign. How God will place us in very unique, specific places like he did Nehemiah as the cupbearer of the king. We could talk a whole lot about the importance of prayer and of fasting, of worship, and may our focus be on the Lord Jesus because out of the overflow of worship, our love for him grows and our love for others grow. But there's one thing I want to close with, and that's of confession of sin. As Christians, many times we don't want people to see who we really are. So we put masks on, we hide our sin deep, deep down into the recesses of our soul and it becomes a heavy weight and a heavy burden. But God has called us to walk in confession. He's called us to confess our sins one to another. And he's also calling his church to stand in the breach and to confess the sins, the, confess the sins of the church and of the nations where God has placed us and to plead for God's mercy. There is so much going on and our world truly needs revival. It needs a move of Holy Spirit and it has to start in God's church with his people humbling themselves, turning from their wicked way, confessing their sins first to the Lord, then to one another and praying and we will be healed. Are you willing to walk in humble confession and humility before our Lord Jesus, and before one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible day. And Jesus, we love you and we praise you because you have taken our sin. And we don't have to do penance. We don't have to follow and obey you and obey all the commandments of the Old Testament. You have already done it. And then you sacrificed your blood on the cross. You shed your blood on the cross. You were buried and you rose from the dead. And for those who believe in you, you've given us your righteousness because it's by grace and faith. 
but you do call us to walk in humility, to walk in the light, to confess our sins. And Father, may we truly be priests for your people, for your world, interceding on behalf of this world for revival, true Holy Spirit revival. May we be a people of prayer and of repentance, of humility and service. And we ask all these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen.